You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 230. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by Aptive. Aptive is my favorite audio fitness app that has the guidance of trainers with great playlists so that you can do a workout that's different than your normal workout, that's giving you the guidance of a trainer, like I said, so someone to coach you along and just make you work that much harder or give you that much more guidance than you would normally have doing something yourself. There's so many different types of workouts. You can do everything from indoor running to outdoor running yoga, meditation, you name it. They even have a trending now feature to help you see which classes are most popular with other Aptive users. And it's seriously so addictive. Give this a try. Even just try like some of the ab workouts alone. You get a free 30-day trial. So give this a try for basically a month by heading over to Aptive.com. That's A-A-P-T-I-V.com. Then click on the sign up button and enter the code The Lively Show in one word. That is what's going to give you that free 30-day trial, much longer than their regular free trial. You can really have fun with it. Try it out. I love using this, especially while I'm traveling. It's basically giving me a gym wherever I am. So if you want to try basically doing the same thing wherever you are, please go check it out. I really do love it. I think it's done incredibly well. Now let's move on to today's show. Today I'm in London cat sitting in Fulham for my friends Emily and James. I've never lived with a cat before, so this is a first for me. And yes, I've opened up my life in many ways and done many things I never thought I would do. And here is one of those things, cat sitting with Lola. So far, we're getting along really well, and it's been fun to learn what it's like to live with a cat instead of dogs. And in today's episode, we're speaking with my friend Dan Russell. Like the other week when we spoke with his business partner, Faze Nazarelli, I love talking to Dan and Faze about all things quantum spirit related. That's what we've termed ourselves, our little trio, as we went to AFest in Amsterdam together. We had so much fun discussing all sorts of things from sacred geometry with Faze to more things like the big bounce and the big bang with Dan. So Dan is more the science side of the quantum spirit trio, and Faze is more the spirit side. I'm, of course, the bridge between them. So this conversation with Dan is, again, giving you a taste of what it might be like if you had friends that like to talk about the crazy, wacky stuff that we talk about here on the show, where we say, you know what? The life is probably and possibly much more like the matrix than we ever really give it credit for in our day-to-day lives. So in this episode with Dan, we're going to go into a whole bunch of things we would talk about just as friends. This is your chance to listen in on a friend conversation on all sorts of topics from philosophy to quantum mechanics, and we have a lot of fun talking about possible connections between them all. And we finally, I don't think we've done it yet so far in the show, discuss possible connections between the law of attraction and entangled particles. Let's go to the show. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat and jam out the science side of the quantum high vibe living stuff with you. But before we get there, let's start with how you got to where you are. Yeah, so I graduated from business school in 2013. Up until that point, I had been living in the United States in and around New York City. But uh, after I graduated, I actually returned to New Jersey, started working with a marketing technology startup. I was always into the kind of entrepreneurial world, and I knew that that was what I wanted to ultimately do. So uh, I started, you know, kind of teaching myself the ins and outs of marketing. I didn't actually have a degree in it. I was I graduated with a bachelor's in technology management and finance. 
And so I kind of uh, built from the ground up there, like my knowledge about internet marketing, my knowledge about you know advertising and fundamentals of you know human psychology and so on and so forth. Up until that point, I hadn't actually you know been in the position of starting my own business. I had started one in college, but obviously it's very different when when you're in college versus when you know you're relying on it for your income. So I ultimately started my own agency about a year after graduation. Uh, so I actually ended my partnership with that startup and started working on that agency. And so that's kind of brought me into worlds that I, you know, always kind of wanted to enter, such as, you know, those of digital nomads and, and uh, independent living, you know, freelancers and, you know, uh, just from a networking standpoint, like I've been able to travel the world and meet people like you and meet people like FaZe, who you, know, you obviously spoke to in a previous episode, now business partner. And I thought that, you know, this was a world that fascinated me so much that, you know, the, the entrepreneurial world that being. And so I've kind of just continued to to build my expertise in that at the same time, pursuing my own passions. You know, I'm, I'm, I live in Colorado, so you know, I'm very outdoorsy, mountain biking, snowboarding, that sort of stuff. And, and just pursuing kind of like high performance stuff and the things that we'll probably dive into in a few minutes around quantum gravity, just things that I don't understand that. And I think that that's kind of what I pursue in life is the things that, that I don't fully understand and the things that kind of boggle my mind. I always end up pursuing those. And that is what leads me to, you know, the greatest realizations about the world, greatest realizations about myself, the most fulfilling you know, adventures and, and projects that I can work on and the, are the ones that are kind of so far from, you know, me grasping them because then once I understand them, I kind of build systems around them and then incorporate that into the business and then move on to the next thing. That's kind of like how my mind works. So from where I've been and where I kind of grew up, what I'm doing now is a far cry from what I expected I would be doing, but it's definitely something that is creative and everyday different and there's always something going on, something to something to, to work on that kind of fuels my passions, which is kind of discovering the unknown and, and working on things that fascinate me. One of the things that you just said, and it made me think a lot, was you're 26. So I'm 32 and I graduated 07. And as you said, you were interested right from the get-go with this whole digital nomad lifestyle and everything. You had that in your eyes and in your sights right from graduation. What was that like? Because that's so not at all when I graduated and I started my business full-time right after school. I knew one 60-year-old woman that had her own business. <laughs> so everyone thought I was crazy that I knew going off to do my jewelry business full-time. So I'm curious because you had such different circumstances. What was it like to see everybody doing that right from the get-go? You know, it was natural for me. I had been such a geek growing up, and I I think I read Napoleon Hill's Thinking Grew Rich when I was like 13 years old. And, you know, all the other kind of abundance mindset sort of stuff from the very beginning because I wanted to have big plans, and I wanted to, in high school, read a book about Andrew Carnegie and, like, his story, and I'm like, oh, he's an industrial titan. And, and the decisions that he made along the way were like a mixture of really hardcore business decisions like this is super logical and we're doing this versus very emotional decisions like at a certain point in his career he was faced with supporting his friends and family to a great extent and one of his business partners for for many years owned a railroad company and uh, they were in serious financial stress and, and it didn't make sense to invest in the in the company anymore. And so he had to tell his his business partner this and what he went through this. It was almost like his mentor, this guy. And so he went through this big emotional journey about, you know, whether or not he was going to, to continue investing in this business 
just because the guy's his mentor. The end result of it was that he said, no, I'm not going to move forward with this because I have a family that relies on me for their income. And if I make this investment, then that falls apart for them, not just for you and me, but for, you know, there's ripple effects. And so I learned a lot from that. And I learned a lot from, you know, following my business idols at the time, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and, you know, the the big ones that, that you always read about. Richard Branson was another big one. But uh, that was kind of like what, what got me started. And then once I got to college, I'm like, well, you know, the, I'm definitely going into business. I'm definitely going into, you know, I'm, I'm going to learn the fundamentals of this because to me, that was the thing that I didn't understand. It was it was honestly between mechanical engineering and business, because those are the two things that fascinated me the most and that I boggled my mind the most. <laughs> One thing I find interesting is that you read The Think and Grow Rich so young, so you kind of tapped into an aspect or tangent of law of attraction material in that. When I've talked with you and had conversations, we haven't touched on that. So I'm curious to know, for the first time myself, how does your super scientific quantum mind handle law of attraction and something like Think and Grow Rich? Which when I first read it, I wasn't in the frequency of it. So I found it a little bit grandiose boasting. And obviously the language is for the time. It's got a very specific tone that I didn't resonate with like five years ago when I first read. What's your take on it with the science background? I think it's perfectly, you know, sound when it comes to, you know, the argument that Napoleon Hill makes in the book, right? So he, I mean, it it, it almost turned Freudian in the sense because you you've got the talk about the subconscious and and patterns and the repetition and transmutation. So while it does touch that spiritual realm, I think it has a, a solid foot planted in you know rationality, like and and the fact that he kind of prefaces the whole book by saying like. We carried out this study on actual people and, you know, what what works and, and the patterns that, that arose out of that. So you can't really argue with that and, and you can't really say, oh, well, he's just making this up. Like it was an actual research study that led to those findings that, that Napoleon included in his book. So it's probably like the perfect example of like the, a beautiful hybrid between the spiritual and the scientific because the stuff works, number one. But it also like you can't really... I don't know. It's it's not like you know you can release a, a a research report today, or maybe you could, I guess, on efficacy of you know implementing the tools that are in Thinking Garage because you have to read through that book. And he says it a couple of times, like he's gonna tell you a secret, right? He's gonna you're going to see you're gonna learn a, a specific secret somewhere in this book, and you may have to read it five times in order to read it. You might have to read it once, but the secret will pop out to you at the time. So how do you measure that? How do you measure like somebody understanding? the law of attraction. There's no way to like to know where that point is. Like you have to read through that book and actually understand the fundamentals of it, you know? Yes. So do you want to know something kind of crazy? What's that? The people behind Abraham Hicks, Esther and Jerry Hicks, Jerry used to teach Think and Grow Rich book. So I have a few thoughts on this book. We could talk about this for a little bit first. So with the book, did you know he found an original copy of it that was before some post-edit that removed the word vibration like 33 or 40 times? So in that book originally, the word vibration was there a ton of times and they removed it. Isn't that interesting? Huh. They thought it was too cutting edge and too out there for the culture at the time. Then they had The Secret came out, and The Secret had Abraham Hicks in it originally. 
by removing Abraham, they took out the word vibration. But they just thought that it was like too out there. Yeah, the word vibrations basically scared society, I guess, for a, a really long time. <laughs> like we really haven't been able to make that leap, which is really interesting to talk to you about because when we get to the science, vibrations, definitely frequency, vibration, all those things are actually very scientific things. And there are these people out there that are super scared to mix anything that has to do with the way we would apply a scientific principle for a particle or a wave to our lives. And there's other people more like myself, they're like, how could we not be, since we're made of the same fundamental particles, having the same principles applied to our lives, we just need to understand the efficacy or the implementation of them in this context. It'll just look different, but the principles will still be the same. It'll have a, a different modality, perhaps, like with Abraham talks about vibration being emotion is the vibration, where in particles and waves, it's a different experience. It's the excitement in the field. So there's two points there. Like the first one is like, why do people have a different approach to it? And the second one is, is it actually sound to, to have like this mono theory, right, of vibration? I think the first question is, why do people have, have these different reactions to it? To me, that goes back to the separation of church and state. Like we've been brought up in society to think about things in sci the scientific world completely independent of the things that exist in the spiritual world or the religious realm. So if you're having a conversation with somebody and you say, hey, you're a high vibe person and they don't jive with that and they're like, I don't know what that means. What is it? Like whatever. Like, And then you explain it to them. They're like, no, no, no. You know, science has its own thing, but but religion is internal. It's it's emotional. It's how I feel, and you can't measure that. But it turns out that you can measure it, and you can actually you know hook up an EEG to your brain and figure out if you're an alpha state, beta state, and so on. So our whole body, and this goes into the second piece, which is the mono theory. Our bodies, our minds are made up of nothing other than the stuff that the rest of the universe is made up out of. It's not like, you know, the human body is some, you know, exception to the laws of physics. It's still following the same rules. Here's one thing, though, but it has consciousness applied to, which makes it this extra mystical, magical creature. Yes, but it makes it special. But and I'm, I'm just going to use weird language here, special, but not unique in our known universe. Right. There's no other example of a human brain. There's no other other manifestation of that level of complexity of atoms that result in consciousness. But the electrical impulses and the combination of those impulses are the same, you know, that cause, you know, a, a you know, a mitochondria to work, you know, itself. So the, that's that's the sort of fundamental similarities that we have with, you know, the rest of of the universe. Like there was a really good example of this I mentioned to you a little bit earlier that I was listening to the Feynman lectures and and in one of his first lectures in that series he uses the example of a man standing on the beach. And he's like, just just picture a man standing on a beach. He's looking out at the ocean. And, you know, there's a myriad of details that he notices. He notices the movement of the water. And he, he notices the color of the sky. And he notices a bird flying over the water. And so on. And then Feynman basically goes on to say, there is so much complexity in this moment. There's the movement of the wind and the interaction of the wind on the surface of the water and the atoms within that water, the currents and the temperature and how fast the atoms are actually vibrating that creates that temperature. And if certain atoms are squeezed together in one area compared to another, that creates sound and, and so on. And he goes on in this, in this intricate level of detail for like 15 minutes. I love Feynman. By the way, guys, 
Richard Feynman, YouTube him, watch him explain electromagnetism. It will make you laugh so hard. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing video. <laughs> so he goes on this diatribe about this picture of a beach. He goes into like the seaweed and like everything. So then he goes on to say, there's no additional or lesser level of complexity in this scene than in any other area of the universe. There are always that level of complexity, including the man standing on the beach thinking this is beautiful. That's consciousness. That's thought. So like in my mind, you know, we're no different where we are the beach and we are in and around and part of the rest of the universe, but we are no more complex on a fundamental level. Yeah, I agree, except for the consciousness of the beach is not the same as our brains that we know of. Although, you know, the psychedelic community might say plants have a consciousness that is <laughs> more complex than we give it. The consciousness of the man on the beach. I, I wasn't saying the beach was conscious. Okay, yeah. So the same fundamental particles are in the beach as in the man. The magical sauce to me is that consciousness and how that interplays with quantum mechanics is even more fascinating. But also, I've probably already mentioned this on the show a few times, but I'm going to share this with you and for anyone else that hasn't heard me talk about this. Have you heard of the Master Key System? It's a book that was written in 1916. I think you told me about it, actually. I haven't read it, though. All my high vibe friends that are like the real deal into this stuff super deep, they're all reading it and loving it, by the way. So this book, please check this out. 1916, The Think and Grow Rich, I believe, was written in 1935. I haven't reread Think and Grow Rich in a long time. When I read it the first time, it was too boasting sounding. I just couldn't get along with the verbiage of it. I wasn't in the frequency, honestly. So I do want to revisit now that I have the awareness and understanding I have of life now. But I will say that when I initially read it, it didn't seem channeled to me. However, the master key system is so concise, so profound, and so deep, and so short, and to the point that I really feel like this guy, Charles Hanel, who no one really knows much about, but he was, fun fact, born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I lived before I sold my house. He, I think, possibly channeled, just given the, the scope and the way of the pace of the book. And I think that potentially Napoleon Hill may have actually read that book to inform Think and Grow Rich. It just became more popular than the Master Key System, which is 101 years old and explains this stuff with a level of clarity that is mind boggling. As my one friend said, he goes, like every other book that's ever been written, you know, is like based on this book. It's amazing. Not that they all knew about it, but just the fundamental universal truths there were so powerful. So if you guys don't like Abraham Hicks, if you think that's too out there, go read this book because it'll give you the same material, but in a really different form or a different, you know, vehicle to give it to you. So we are, you know, the mono theories, which you call it, I call it holism, just as the term that I like to use. I think I like holism more. Yeah, I think it's cool to see the interconnectivity. I love what you just said. It's about the separation of church and state. And when I think about why, especially here in the US, that is like the Protestants coming over on the boat and everything, they were so oppressed with their religious beliefs that they had humans and egos of those humans pushing on them or restricting on them so that they wanted to keep them separate, to keep themselves safe. But if we recognize the holism of the entire being, which is what holism is all about, you realize that separating them is actually dividing yourself in two. Yeah, it's it's going against, you know, how we now know that you were built. Like, I think if we really go back thousands of years and we look at, you know, a, a really good example would be Democritus. 
who really laid the foundations for atomic theory. And and at the same time that he was around, Plato and Aristotle were around, but as the Dark Ages came to be and the, the Crusades, you know, started to occur and the, the Roman Empire fell and so on and so forth, and the list goes on, but you have these, you know, examples of periods of time where, you know, they burned books and they, they got rid of things that didn't agree with whatever that the ruler of the time happened to want to, you know, be the favorite religion. And so you have Plato and Aristotle who were a little bit more along the lines of theological philosophers. And and obviously they were still very rational and you have the dialectic form and so on, but they still like I believe it was uh, Aristotle who who like started to talk about the uh, purpose of things. And when they were talking about the, the earth being round, Aristotle's argument was there's no reason for it to be round unless it has a purpose to be round. And, you know, notwithstanding the argument of, you know, that, that has holes in it, like you, you can kind of see how, how his mind worked. And the same thing kind of went for Plato as well. So their work actually survived the Dark Ages and it made it through and actually formed the basis of many of the tenets of Western civilization. Democritus, however, was saying there is no God. There's just these tiny little things that we're going to call atoms, and whether you like it or not, these exist, and, and so on and so forth. So so very little of his work actually made it through, which led to, in my opinion, and, and, and you could go back to historians and so on, which led to what modern society, Western society, becoming more focused on theology versus science, because Democritus's work and, and the work of of many of the scientists of Miletus, which was like a one the first scientific community to ever exist, were lost with time. And, and so everything that the rest of the world was built on started to kind of go around that more purpose-driven and, I don't know what you want to call it, like, you know, a theological sort of philosophy. Interesting. Actually, in the master key system, now people are going to have your own beliefs. So go with your intuition on this, right? We're not here to tell people what to believe. We're here to open ourselves to different and new ideas just because it's fun to hold in our hands new ideas. But one of the ideas that was so fascinating that came from the master key systems, he describes it as basically that everything's based on principles. So the principle of gravity, principle of electricity, the principle of law of attraction was included in that. And that's the one I think for us, we haven't been able to scientifically measure in any conclusive way. So we can see electricity, we can see gravity. The law of attraction, I I do believe, is acting in the world as a principle. But because we don't have a Geiger counter that can really measure it in the scientific way we, in the last 300 years, have been used to, we just discredit it. However, so his point was that law of attraction is just giving you a reflection of whatever your emotional and thought state is. So you're going to see life reflected at you now. Abraham would say we're very bad at this. We're mostly unconscious. So we're mostly getting more of the same of whatever we're noticing because we're really good at paying attention to reality. And we're not very good at directing our thoughts into a direction that's not reality, but it's more what we want because that takes our focus away from the present reality. And they say it's kind of like put a seed of uh, corn in the ground and you plant it and you want it to grow, but we're super bad at waiting for it to grow. So we like wait three times. You say three little positive words. We're like, okay, where's the sock of corn now? I don't see the manifestation yet. They're like, give it some time. You got to really focus on this. And you're just eating the corn kernel out of the ground instead of letting it actually grow to its full capacity. So basically he says that 
and this is just his belief, I'm not telling people what to think, but his point was that God, we think that we have this deity out there that is reflecting back to us this personal connection and understanding of our lives and where we are and what we need to grow and what we need to learn. And if God is good, you know, then you probably got a good, pretty good point of attraction. If you got that God is evil, why would he do all these things? God has a pretty low point of attraction. But he said that's why people think it's so personalized to everyone's individual connection because it's law of attraction reflecting back to you at every moment of your life, just like gravity is reflecting back to you at every moment of your life, gravity. It's reflecting back to you whatever your vibrational state is. And one of the really cool things is when you get down to these subatomic levels, like string theory, for example, is a really great example, or quantum field theory, talk about the big foundational thing is that it's just vibrations literally are what the subatomic particles are in going from a state of something being stable to something moving or something vibrating. And this would be exactly what the law of attraction and all this other crazy kind of sounding stuff would be speaking to from a metaphysical level. Yeah, you bring up a a good point there, because I think there's a direct link between the fundamentals that, you know, many of the leaders, and I hesitate to call them gurus, because in my mind, that kind of like derides their value. But you know, those those leaders of the space, have actually taught like connections between what they've taught and the science that's actually coming about today. This is the only time in human history that we can actually measure what it means to think and what it means to be conscious and what it means to be angry and to be joyful and to uh, desire something and so on. And there's so much that we can glimpse that into like the connections between mindfulness and the human body and and how you actually work it and there's ways to hack it and there's ways to to become more more tuned in to like what makes up an abundant you know state versus a scarcity state i think it's fascinating to do that because like 100 years from now what is society going to look like i mean if you consider the fact that mindfulness only made it onto the scene in the last like 15 years, 20 years. Yeah, outside of the cloistered asceticism of many long-standing histories like Buddhism, right? So aside from the monks that have been doing this, for a mainstream audience, you're totally right. We're babies as a species at recognizing, oh, how do we think? Like we're so unconscious and so asleep. Like all the spiritual teachings have always said, we're totally not observing what is creating our reality, which is the thoughts. There's just been no way to prove it. And that's the difference between 150 years ago and now is that we can now prove it. We can prove that mindfulness improves your life. We can prove that yoga improves your life. You can prove that meditation improves your life. Okay, let's get into it. But by the way, for all those people that love those stupid science, I mean, I'm not saying they're stupid. They're great. But here's the thing. You can prove it by trying it. And if your life is improved, that's proof. Like, I don't know why people sometimes need a permission slip from some scientist to say and do a study with people and go, did they score four out of five and then they moved to seven out of five? Here's why that's important, though, because it is important what you just said to, to know what works for you and, and to be self-aware. And, and that's that's honestly, in, in my mind, that's probably you know why these things have stood the test of time because like, they, they do work. But you just, it's a feeling, right? It's, it's, a, it's an awareness that you have. But what's important now is that now that you can, you can start measuring these things and, and improving it, and the reason that it's getting into the mass market is because they're, I, I don't want to use like capitalism as, a, as an example here, but, but they become profitable for companies and companies right, to you know, proliferate change in society. So I was reading two days ago, just two days ago, actually, Aetna, the insurance company, 
found that incorporating mindfulness and uh, meditation as an incentive program in their insurance programs not only reduced their per employee cost by $2,000, but increased the productivity of their employees by $3,000. So it's turning into this like massive, it's a trillion dollar industry at this point, but you know, even over the last couple of years, it's been growing and growing and growing and growing because you have these big players that are saying, we get it now. Like we, we understand we're, it's, it's not just that, you know, taking a nap in the middle of the day is laziness. It's actually fueling you and it's making you a better person. And the 90 hour work weeks are now like starting to get frowned upon because you're just burning yourself out. And it's been scientifically proven that anything past 60 hours a week is just not good work. Well, I think about that here, law of attraction, right? Your frequency, your emotional state is what's the biggest player in what you're getting, not your actual effort. If you're willing to make that leap, you know, a lot of people aren't there yet. But if you are, then of course, 90 hour work weeks, who's going to be, unless you're Gary Vaynerchuk, happy about the 90 hour work week? Yeah. And, and I think that that was, that's probably a, an ethos that was carried over from, you know, our parents' generation and their parents' generation. When you go through the depression, like all you have to do is work harder and harder and harder. Because it's survival and it's unconscious, not aware of thought, right? So we, I actually just had a conversation at lunch today and this friend, she's from Bulgaria and she has a very strong work ethic and she's trying to change that about herself. And, you know, she has all these examples in her life that show that this isn't true, but she still has the belief. And she has these parents that gave her this. Well, think about this. We're such a young species. We have just started to wake up. We've just started to observe the thought. So all those generations before that have all those statues for all the suffering that went on in the world, for all of those times that people tried really, really, really hard, that is like the cannonball versus the atom bomb. That is the unconscious and the old way of doing things. They didn't know any better. And we, if we hopefully wake up, know that there is another option and that the power is in the other option, not in the old way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a fascinating time to be alive in so many ways. So do you do anything with the law of attraction? Because I'm really impressed we're talking about law of attraction with you because I know how much you love, you know, SpaceX and you like Feynman and quantum mechanics. So I love that you're also on board with this stuff too. Not too surprising because FaZe is also our friend and FaZe is into all of this as well. But yeah, how do you focus on law of attraction for yourself? Oh, I incorporate it more so into my daily routine when it comes to like the conversations that I have. I find that I'm an extrovert. I can get along with anybody and and meet somebody very easily and, and, and just kind of kick things off. But even when I'm in conversations with FaZe or, or you or, or anybody, I find that my mind goes into the visionary mode and it always goes into like what can be and what will be. And I'm very careful about the language that I use. And, and that's one of the reasons that, that FaZe and I get along so well is like he, he corrects me and I correct him whenever our language is off. Like I'll say like, I'll say something along the lines of, oh, we need to hit these targets. And he'll be like, we will hit those targets. Like no damn. So there's, there's a piece of that that's incorporated into my, just the habits, right? It's the language that you use, but also mental patterns. Like I'm aware when I'm in a scarcity mentality and I know that I don't perform. How do you know when you're in it? Because I'm guessing some people are asking that question. How do you know when you're in scarcity? So when I'm in scarcity mode, I'm worried. I'm anxious. And that creates like a feeling, a physiological feeling of just having like a pit in my stomach, you know? And I'm always worried about losing something or not having enough of something. 
that's kind of like the defining aspect of scarcity, right? Like when there's not enough of something. That could be time scarcity, that could be money scarcity, that could be love scarcity for some people. Like it's, it's not like there's one type of scarcity. So that's when I know. And what I've found is that changing my environment is is always the solution. So if I'm totally like caught up in something and I'm like, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough you know money, I don't have enough attention, I don't have enough contacts or relationships or whatever for something to work. I leave and I, I conscious and that sounds like, you know, to the, the previous generation, if I see that, say that they're like, you leave, like you give up, they're like, no, I, I just change my environment, right? I go to a cafe or I go snowboarding for an hour or, you know, I, I go exercise and then I come back and by that point, I'll have gone through the right mental exercises and patterns to get me back into that abundance mindset. You go get in alignment. You stop what you're doing to get back into a high frequency. Yeah, exactly. I love that. That is exactly what I've been trying to help people to do. I actually saw this on Abraham the other day, and this kind of summarizes my life now is I spend all my time getting really, really, really happy, and then I do whatever I have time left to do at the end of that. <laughs> so I just ramp it up as high as possible because I realized when I watched the photoelectric effect, I made my own conclusions. You can listen to that one here on this show in the Quantum Living series where I was like, oh my gosh, it's the frequency, not the intensity that is the level fulcrum point for everything. And if we are vibrations in the field, the frequency is the most important piece of that that actually taps into that field and makes things happen. You know what I hope they get to do scientifically is to find out if emotions have vibration or what the frequency of emotions are, because I think that would be a huge piece of this that's kind of missing right now from the scientific piece of the law of attraction stuff, is if we can show that there actually is a, like the neuropeptides, if the emotional components of our bodies actually have a frequency, my gosh, are we gonna be able to connect these words in these scientific terms to the physical and the metaphysical experience? I'll tell you my theory. This is what I ultimately think that it's, it's going to turn into is that it's not just the you know a, a vibration of, of particles or fields. It's a combination of ways that we can communicate those sorts of emotions. So if I'm feeling sad, what does that mean? There's a certain part of my brain that's lighting up. There's a certain part of other parts of my brain that are shutting down. There are certain chemicals that are being released. There's pheromones, right? There are, and then there are brain waves, and that's where a lot of the frequency comes from. So, and this is my theories. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm on board. So, when we're talking about you attracting something into your life, then it's a combination of a lot of those things, and probably things that we don't even know about yet that interact with our environment, with the people in our environment, with the universe, and and so on. And and you, you know, we can talk about how quantum theory actually comes into that you know, sort of stuff. But for the most part, you have all these complex systems interacting in the human body. And at the same time, it's following the same fundamental laws. So, you know, when, when you get down to the quantum level, if an electron moves, you know, one way, you know, inside our body, that there's a possibility that another electron somewhere else is moving the same way. And, and how can we say that if that has nothing to do with emotion, when in reality, our entire body chemistry changes with the you know every passing moment and every word that we speak and every emotion that we feel. So that's kind of like how I kind of see those two worlds colliding. 
you know, whether it's five years or 10 or 50 years in the future, when we start to realize the connections between what Abraham Hicks is talking about and what people are seeing in MRI scans. Yeah, what you're saying actually is really bringing, I never thought about, so people could say there's no connection. There's like this dead emotion, almost like this non-movement emotion. And then there's this active thing that we're talking about where things are drawn to you and like, how does this movement happen? But you're right, the neural peptide. So once you have a thought, the thought creates a neural peptide in the hypothalamus. Then it goes down. It's like a little thing. It's your emotion. It goes down through your bloodstream into your cell receptor sites of your body. So if you start crying because you're sad or happy, you're actually, by the way, your tears have a different chemical makeup depending on the emotion you're having, which I haven't done the research to read the book yet, but I'm wondering if it has to do with the neural peptides and depending on the chemistry of that neural peptide that's releasing the tears, that's probably maybe what's the chemical difference. But but there's a lot of action movement, like you get goosebumps, you could get your heart racing. There's a lot of movement in our bodies when we have emotion. It's exciting a lot of electrons. Like you're just saying, I never really thought about the electron movement in the body because the emotion becomes a physical feeling that has a movement in the body. That's so cool. Yeah, it's fascinating. You tiptoed around it. Do you want to hear? I don't know how this is going to be able to be explained to people that have never studied anything quantum before, but do you want to hear my pet theory on like a way of describing potential reality? I'm not saying it is reality, but it helps me understand a story or an analogy, an analogy that allows me to interpret my life experience and live in it in a more powerful way. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm not gonna say that this is gonna ever be scientifically proven and I don't need it to. All it is for me is maybe a pot shot possibility, but really just a story that changes my perception of reality so I can apply these principles more effectively. Because when I'm still living, I still struggle. I notice this thought pattern in myself about worthiness and deservedness when it comes to law of attraction. Like if I can have it so good, how come other people are suffering? That kind of thing. Or do I deserve all these good things that I want? I'm almost like asking for permission to have like the exact life circumstances I'd want. Now that's kind of the deity way. That's like saying that someone's choosing that you deserve or don't deserve something. And really, it's just a law like gravity. It's like nothing, there's nothing there judging you. <laughs> it's just happening. Electricity is not judging anyone. It's not electrocuting the evil and saving this, you know, the good. It's just doing its thing, right? So I'm still trying to break out of that childhood background I have of Catholicism because I kind of have this like tiptoeing around instead of being really commanding and saying, oh, my thoughts create my reality. I get to choose whatever thoughts I want. And by doing so, I will model this potential for others. And that's the best thing I could do to help other people. I can't become poor enough to help other poor people. I can't become sick enough to help other sick people. It's in my ability to use these principles that shows it's possible and others will begin to do so as well. Here's the story I'm trying to retrain my brain to go back to instead of the deity do i deserve it is there like did i did i do enough things to go to heaven you know do i have enough good marks on the chalkboard okay so quantum field theory has this idea and if you guys are like what the heck is that i understand so basically imagine they usually make them like little gridded sheets of paper 
that's kind of how they make a, a field look. So it's like all these little slices of space. And the idea is that each slice of space has its own, that's called a field, and each fundamental particle has its own field that it vibrates in. So an electron has its own field. But basically, I'm gonna just use one field, right? So I'm gonna say like the electron field. Well, I'm gonna say that I'm imagining myself, since I know that my neurons, the science is proving, don't actually house my memories, my consciousness no longer is housed the way I used to think in my brain. It's actually somewhere else. And my neurons are just tuned to that field. That's just the word we're using for it. So if I imagine my consciousness, the part of me that I'm speaking from, that I'm just using this mouth and this body to speak from, my neurons are just trained to that field. It's tuned to like a radio station, if you will. That piece of paper that's gridded, that has vibration when it has activity. So if an electron's in there bouncing around, it creates a vibration. Well, the vibration when we use law of attraction is always connected to thought and emotion, okay? So in the mathematics, and this is where, again, super hardcore scientists that aren't into the holism thing will say, just don't do this. But this is what I'm saying is just, it helps me understand this in a story that I can get away from a deity and get into a more of a principle-based understanding. That's how your brain works, right? It's it's like you when when you tell yourself that story, you're just reinforcing those patterns, and and it may, it gives you a framework for which to put those those principles to work. Yes, perfectly said. So now I've got this little. I imagine when I have a thought and emotion, I'm creating a vibration in my field, that gridded piece of paper. I'm like creating a little bounce. Think of it as almost like this a drum skin, and I hit the drum skin. Okay, so I want to make it a positive emotion, a high frequency emotion. If it's not, I'm going to get the low frequency because that's law of attraction is just mirroring back to you. Imagine it's just like mirroring back. It's just reflecting back to you. It's like a mirror. That's it. So it's just going to show you wherever you're at. But I want to make it positive. But here's the thing in the quantum field, they've done mathematical studies and they found mathematically antimatter solves a lot of the problems they have when they're doing these equations. They find that there's like two electrons that have different spins or upspin and a downspin. And then they're, in order to solve a lot of the inconsistencies they were having, they realized there has to be what they're calling antimatter, which is the, like another pair of electrons that are in this field. So the they can't really see, they don't really fully understand the antimatter stuff yet. It's far more unknown. And weirdly, it's not in balance. There's not an equal amount of antimatter to matter. There's a slight um, preference for matter in our physical world than the antimatter. And they actually think that's kind of what created the Big Bang, or like what created this forward momentum of matter actually making the bounce and vibrating. I think that, you know, this is the story I'm telling myself to get away from a deity-based experience and get into a law-based experience. So what I imagine is that when Abraham talks about the larger part of you, the non-physical part of you is always at this positive place and is always the minute you want something at the frequency of that, the realization of whatever you want. You want the new car, the new partner, the new job, whatever it is, that that frequency is set. And that's kind of, to me, I'm telling myself, it's like the antimatter, which literally think of the words, antimatter non-physical. They're literally the same synonyms. You just swap the words around and that's what you're talking about. So I think of the non-physical part of me kind of always at a really high frequency. And then I, in my physical form, am trying to match that frequency to manifest in the physical world to have those uh, waves, those frequencies in that field line up and match. And when I do, that thing that I want shows up in my life in some way or some circumstance in my life reflects back to me 
that feeling. And I'm also wondering, have you been thinking about entangled particles being a part of law of attraction? I was thinking about it, yeah, when I was talking about the electrons. Yeah, because I knew you were talking about it earlier. I was like, should I bring up quantum entanglement? <laughs> well, do you want to explain it to people? Yeah, so so basically, the principle of quantum entanglement, uh, and I'm I'm grossly oversimplifying here, but you know, for for the most part, it it, it still stands. The the principle of quantum entanglement states that uh, in certain circumstances, the behavior of a either quantum particle, which is you know such as a quark, uh, is correlated, and they're believing causes the uh, an identical movement in an identical particle in a separate atom at a distance. So what that means is, you know, if if we were really going to extrapolate that, we would say if I if I move my arm three feet, you know, upward, and I'm I'm in Colorado in the United States, then if my arm was entangled, let's call it, with you know your arm across the world, then your arm would rise by the same you know distance at the same time. Actually, wouldn't it go down because it's opposite spin? You might be right. Yes. There's an immediate reaction. So the minute you do something, my arm will do the opposite immediately without any distance. So it's not like you sent them me a message and then it took the speed of light to get to me. It's faster than the speed of light. It's immediate. And so what I was thinking when I was talking about the electrons, you know, in, in your brain, like if there is a, an entanglement between your brain or the part of your brain that is, you know, feeling this emotion or or if, if quantum entanglement is, you know, true, then it also applies to fields because particles and, and, and fields are the same thing. You have this connection between vibrations between you know your body your mind and something else in the universe either somebody else's mind or something else you know out there that aligns with that vibration this is where like what you were just describing a minute ago like i believe and what abraham hicks talks about and 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 what was in the secret and so on i believe is the foundations of what will ultimately become an incredibly rich scientific body of study because there's just so much that remains unanswered that and there's so many coincidences, <laughs> you know, and, and, and accounts of weird stuff happening like that, uh, where the law of attraction does work and it, it actually affects people physiologically and, and things happen and serendipity occurs and and so on. Like you can't ignore that. I, I wanted to highlight that because it, the way that you were describing it was actually, you know, quite organized. And, you know, I, I imagine that realm of of abundance and you know vibrational living and so on is at the same level of scientific development as as you know quantum physics was probably 80 years ago 90 years ago like right when before Dirac you know came along and before even before Einstein came along did it make sense maybe atoms exist you know maybe <laughs> like there, there's no way to really tell but but they could exist so some experiments have shown that the, that's reality and then fast forward 100 years look where we are now Actually, did what I say make sense to you? I know you understand quantum field theory more than most. <laughs> yeah, I did. It made sense. Okay. So if I was to give you guys another way of thinking about this, okay? So I know that was kind of weird. Just imagine I'm standing on a basketball court and that's the field. I'm the electron in the field. I'm my frequency, right? And I have like my non-physical counterpart, the non-physical Jess. And non-physical Jess in my story is really happy. She's like always super happy. And she's so happy. She's jumping up and down. And she's jumping up and down fast and high. And if I'm in a lousy, tired, crappy mood, 
I'm not going to be able to jump as high as she is or get into the same rhythm as her because I'm going at a slower pace and I'm going to be tired. I'm not going to be able to jump as high. But what I'm trying to do over time is jump as high as she is and jump in rhythm with her and then give her a high five. And I believe that if I'm able to get into the pace of her, jump as high as she is and give her that high five and match it and have that connection, that's when I think the magic happens. That's when I think that there is something incepted into the actual physical life experience where something lines up with that and it's in the direction you want. And when you're not in a direction of what you want, you're just getting more of what you don't want because you're at the frequency of what you're getting and the law of attraction is just giving you what you're getting, which you're giving, which is not what you want. That's my non-sciencey way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, you're projecting into the universe the version of you that you want to align with. And in doing so, you're setting a standard for the patterns of thought and, and expression and, and action that you want to to actually, you know, exhibit in your physical being. And so by projecting that ideal version of yourself, you are setting that as a goal and you're 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 not only putting that out into the universe but you're consciously trying to activate that reach that state that you've set as your goal yes and i'm not telling a story of worthiness or deservingness right so that's what i've gotten away from and that's the biggest thing that i think that is holding me back personally is the subtle like dredges of a Catholic guilt upbringing <laughs> that I'm trying to get out of. So I'm no longer looking at this principle and feeling worthy of a principle that's happening. From one raised Catholic to another, that was well described. Right? I'm just trying to recognize this is a principle. This is this is electricity. This is gravity. This is not something that is judging me. There's nothing out there saying I, I'm the only one judging me. That's it. And other people's egos. But you know, who cares about their egos? That's not for me to worry about. My reality is my own to create, as is theirs. And it's, and it's in our living this that we're able to show others it's possible. It's like the first person that maybe walks on water and everyone's like, you can't do that, I can't do that. Someone does it and then like someone else tries and they do it. It's like breaking the four minute mile. They thought it couldn't be done and then like 60 people did it in two months after the first one did. So it's like, we just got to get some people to break through and show that it's possible. And it's been happening in slow pieces over time, but I think it's going to accelerate, like you said. And I hopefully the science will match it as well. I hope that you're right about that. I think it will. It's, it's inevitable if it's true that science will begin to find ways to depict this. Yeah, well, if, I mean, science is basically a, a process of finding ways to approximate the universe. Like we don't know all the rules, and usually when we when we finally get a rule, we find an exception to the rule. Through the process of experimentation, like we'll be able to replicate a lot of these sorts of effects that we're talking about. But the process in between is is more of like observation and you know less controlled experimentation, which is you know the last you know hundred years or, or so. So I think eventually there's going to be enough of a you know movement. And it's already started, like I mentioned, you know, stuff as, as simple as meditation is making it into the mainstream in a big way. You have these trends that start to, you know, make it a little bit more realistic to think, well, what if they did have a research study on, you know, the law of attraction? Or, or what if they, they did have a giant group experimentation on how you can, you know, attract things into your life and like what, where quantum entanglement comes in? Like, I would love to see that. I would love to, to like watch that unfold or even be part of it because there's like such a wide body of knowledge that we have yet to, to really tap into and like and, and learn what the rules are. 
I 100% agree. And what's going to be really interesting about the studies on law of attraction, and this is what I think makes people trip up and think it doesn't work, is it's not the words you use. It's the vibration of your body that is activating this and moving this. So you can say I'm abundant and have the feeling of fear, right? You can say anything you want. It's what the vibration is that you have. That's the actual movement. So people can say things all day long, but if they don't believe it to the point where they're making a neural peptide based on it, then it's not going to change anything. So, so they could have people, you know, say, how happy are they? What, you know, scale them out on that and say, what happens to you? But that will never give them an accurate reading. I think that if they could find a way to tap into the frequency or the engagement or level of neural transmitters so they can see the emotions coursing through the person's body and then observe the results of it, that would be a more powerful way to prove that. Because I think that people get so lost in the, the concept right now as it is, there'd be no way other than I think like taking their own judgment out of the equation of whether they're in that vibrational frequency or not. You're absolutely right. Because there is a lot of judgment around it. There, there has been for for any new area of science, always. Like people didn't believe that atoms existed. People didn't believe that, that, you know, the universe came from a single point or that, you know, you could stretch time or like none of those ideas were popular <laughs> when they first came out. So the idea that, you know, your, your thoughts become reality is just another manifestation of that. And it takes, takes time, but but, you know, with enough time and, and with enough, you know, work on the part of people who believe in pursuing that proof, then, you know, it'll turn into, you know, something as, as straightforward as gravity. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is I keep thinking about how much of what I'm studying now came from the 19 teens and 20s. That this stuff, like I'm reading, you know, the master key system, 1916, quantum mechanics is like all through the early 1900s, 1920s, that kind of thing. And then the world wars happened. So then people started beating up on each other. And like we got distracted by this massive energy drain of killing other pieces of the universe, which is ourselves, that really slowed down. I mean, obviously, there was advancements for crappy reasons, like hurting other people, right? There's a lot of scientific discoveries to find ways to hurt more people that later we could translate into science and space exploration. And I find that it's interesting that we're coming back to these ideas after kind of this period of time that was not as focused on them. And I hope that we can keep and maintain a focus on it and not get so distracted by things that are super behind in terms of our evolution, like Again, hurting the universe thereby, i.e. like hurting other people in the process. It would distract us from all of this work that's so important. I think that it's, I mean, even though you've got, you know, some crazy advanced technological, you know, improvements that come out of something as horrific as war, it's still got a bad precedent. So if you invent a technology for the purpose of blowing up a town, versus inventing a technology for the purpose of, you know, uh, helping a village get access to clean water or something like that, the, the precedent is much different. And so the use of that technology is predicated on the precedent for which it was, you know, created in the first place. So, you know, nuclear physics was pushed along very, you know, very far by the need for simultaneously weapons of mass destruction as well as energy. So in my opinion, that's that's kind of why nuclear technology is has a has a colorful history and is used in many ways today for very good things, but also very bad things. 
So I think if, if we have a better attitude towards and a respect for the power of these technological advances, then we can handle the next discovery of you know the universe with a little bit more responsibility and, and not point it towards you know the heads of other people but point it you know to the stars and 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 try to heal the planet and so on because there's a ton of other things that we can discover and that we will discover and that will change the course of you know humanity as we know it but um, if we're in the middle of a world war and then we discover it the first question that we ask is how can we use this against our enemies which is ourselves because it's holism that's another thing that they talk about in the master key system that was so powerful. They describe good versus evil. And they say good is that which is in alignment with the benefit of the whole universe. And evil is just that which harms the whole universe. That's good and evil. It's just what is beneficial for everything or what is unbeneficial, which is interesting when you bring it down to the micro level of yourself. So if you're being not nice to yourself, you're not being nice to the universe, thereby you are what quote unquote is considered evil. Not that you're evil, but that you're doing something that's disharmonious with the universe, which is not sustaining. And that's why it feels so bad. That's why things that are anything that would hurt the whole or yourself, because you are a part of the whole, feel so crappy is because it's not in alignment with the benefit of the whole universe expanding, which is what is happening in the universe right now. Well said. This is so fun to talk to you about. Hopefully people have enjoyed this as much as we have. But let me wrap up here with two questions for you. Number one is what internal doubts or resistance are you currently going through? Hmm. I'm breaking through a uh, like a next phase, I guess you could call it, or, or pattern in my life, which is that of like super high performance. I've been kind of architecting my life in, in a way that installs habits and, and routines and so on that are based on things that I either know about myself or know that work, such as, you know, ways of biohacking your brain through, through the use of nootropics and supplements, or organizing my schedule in a way that is both conducive to productivity as well as my need for variety in my days. And so the limitation and doubt that I've been I've been having is that I can't do everything that I that I want to do. And that fear, that doubt actually arose a couple of years ago for me when I was just graduated from college. And I was thinking like I've got a million things that I want to do with my life, but I don't want to do it, but I don't I, I don't have enough time to do all of them right now. So that led to patience and a little bit of, you know, planning ahead. But now it's more on the micro level, which is I want to, in any given day, fuel myself with every single, you know, piece of, you know, what fuels me, what uh, gives me value and makes me feel fulfilled, which puts me into flow. And doubts and uncertainty that I've been having around that is I've got so much happening that that is outside of my flow. I don't know if I can put that out of my life temporarily or delegate it or put it somewhere else so that I can focus 100% of my time on things that put me into flow, put me into a state of fulfillment. So that's a doubt that I've kind of been <laughs> dealing with recently. I feel like Faze could help you with that. Yeah. yeah, he, he, yeah. <laughs> okay. So and what would you tell someone just starting out on this journey? I would definitely tell them to be open and to not use the rules that were explained to them as children as the basis of living their life to come up with their own rules and their own belief systems and their own belief structures so that when you reach 70 years old, you're not questioning whether or not you were following the right rules. You were following. In the end, you should be following your own rules, the rules that you believe in. And if those rules overlap with rules that the rest of the world has set, then that's a bonus. Beautiful. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. <laughs> and there you have it. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for listening. If you want to send Dan a message, you can do so over on Twitter at Dan J. Russ, R-U-S-S. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, you can find me at Jess C, as in cat sitting lively. And for show notes for this episode, head over to JessLively.com slash Dan Russell. Now for where I'm headed to next, I am staying here in London with Lola, cat sitting a little longer, and working on a secret project, which is going to be aired for you in the coming months. It's been fun to be working on this. I think it's going to be something you guys will enjoy, or I hope you will, and I'll be sharing more details as it is coming to its conclusion. But for now, I am in sequester mode a little longer. Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. 